Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Very excited for this week's guest. Unreal story coming up. Before we get to it, though, remind you guys about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. And guess what? Whatever you spend... We get a percentage of, and we take that money and we donate it right back to the, some of the great charities you've heard here on the Hazard Ground. So you can help out veterans everywhere just by doing your normal Amazon shopping. Once again, go to hazardground.com, click on that Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. Help out vets everywhere, all across the country, just in the comfort of your own home and your own personal computer or mobile phone. Remind you guys about all the social media sites that we're on, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us there and keep getting the word out, man. Tell your friend to follow us as well because a lot of great information we're putting out each and every week about the shows and the upcoming things that we have going on is on there. Plus, it's a great way to interact with us and let us know what you like what you don't like. You can also help us get more guests if people you know have a story. Also a great way to let us know what is going on. Finally, I mentioned about what you like and what you don't like. Get on iTunes, leave us a rating and review. Give us a five-star rating because we know you love the show, but also let us know what you think. doesn't have to be a long rating, something really short and sweet to the point that'll let us know what you guys think going forward. And now on to this week's episode with an amazing story on the Hazard Ground. I am so excited for this week's guest simply because I have found somebody in the Army who has a striking similarity to something that I have done that I have been uh, noted for throughout my entire career. And believe it or not, it's nothing that is military related. As many of you know, I used to be a Baltimore Ravens cheerleader in the NFL. Well, this is going to be our first guest on the Hazard Ground who actually joins me in the ranks of NFL cheerleader. She used to be one for the Philadelphia Eagles. She then went on to get commissioned and enter the Army and joined the Special Operations Unit's full of Green Berets and Navy SEALs, and went and deployed to Afghanistan. She is retired Army Captain Rachel Washburn joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Rachel, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to get to share a little bit about my experience. I'm delighted to hear it. I I, I, Honestly, I mean, like literally I'm giddy over this whole thing because, you know, you and I were talking before we started recording and being an NFL cheerleader and being in the Army aren't two things that anybody ever would put together. So it's great that I have somebody else here. I knew your former director and it's fantastic that uh, I I have another uh, cheerleader in my ranks or by my side in this whole thing. But we usually start out at the beginning by asking people about how they got into the military, but I'm more curious and I think the listeners are too about the cheerleading experience because that's you know not something that everybody gets to say they do in general yeah so um you know my background i wasn't a cheerleader in high school everyone kind of just assumes that that's the route you take for nfl cheerleading um but my experience was as a gymnast and then picked up dancing in high school and college and at my time at drexel i was looking to kind of take my dancing to the next level and I was always a football fan and, you know, met a girlfriend who was a 76ers dancer for the NF or for the NBA. And I just thought I was like, okay, it doesn't get more, doesn't get a bigger stage. doesn't get more Americana than the NFL. Like I might as well go big or go home and went to the open call auditions for the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, was one of hundreds of talented, beautiful women, uh, kind of totally in over my head, but, uh, went in blindly and, just with a lot of excitement and enthusiasm and I was fortunate enough to be one of the 38 women to ultimately make the the team um, right as a freshman freshman in college. So uh, a, a unique experience at that young age um, while still being a student and uh, ROTC cadet at the time. Now, when you went into your tryouts, did you tell them that you were an ROTC cadet or was that something you kind of just kept to yourself? No, I, I told them uh, I wanted to be transparent in the you know, the kind of candidate and that I was, and also an understanding of kind of what I was getting myself into as far as you know being a being busy academically or being busy with my uh, other commitments. And I think they appreciated it because 
I'm, as you know, the women who go out for uh, this high level of kind of entertainment and athleticism, they're a varied bunch. Yeah, we have like this thing in common where we love performing and we're great dancers, but they're highly intelligent, you know, highly diverse in their backgrounds uh, and, and in their interests. And, you know, I just was added to the mix of being, here's this interesting woman who is a part of uh, this dynamic and colorful organization. When you were going through um, the Eagles and, and being on that team, did you ever have like conflicts with ROTC and other things that said, I can't show up to a game or I can't do anything? I have to do, you know, an FTX or anything like that? I did. So it, it certainly was a challenge uh, balancing my commitment. My junior, uh, so for two summers, so I went to airborne school between my sophomore and junior year, which is um, you know, a month long, right in the middle of right, you know, preseason as, as the team is really becoming a team. Uh, so I had to be away for that for a month. And then going into my senior year, I had aerosol school as well as my senior leader uh, verifying course, more or less the thing that tells me if I'm equipped to be an officer right. in the military. So was gone for eight weeks at that time, missed a huge chunk of uh, the the training before the season begun, began in a couple games. But the organization was more than supportive, was more than willing to adapt and be flexible with me to let me fulfill my commitments and still feel like a, a real member of the team and the organization. Now, that's funny because – not funny, but I mean, I, I went through the same thing. So I was um, you know, commissioned by the time I had started cheering for the Baltimore Ravens. And I, I think the one main difference is I was – my first years on the Ravens were prior to 9-11. So when I had military conflicts – you know, they told me the Ravens did at the time. They were like, well, this is a, this is a job, you know, you have to treat it like that and we need you to be here and we're not going to allow you to miss certain times for military obligations. So I had mm-hmm. to choose at, at some point in time. And, you know, I, I had a lot of consternation going back and forth and that's not disparaging, you know, the Ravens for doing so. I just think it was a different time and a different culture. You obviously were post nine 11 and the, the world was a little bit more sensitive to it, but uh, it's, it's great that they did support, you Now, what did your, teammates say were any of the girls looking at you like sideways going what the hell is wrong with her i certainly never felt that way uh the there's i don't know what your experience was but i only had an incredibly positive experience with working with these women uh a a lot of mentorship a lot of support Uh, i think you know maybe that the culture of the country informs some of it sure uh I think that uh, while it was a challenge and, you know, I had a steep learning curve when I returned from my training, I think the women saw it as, you know, okay, it's unfortunate that Rachel didn't get to be part of the last six to eight weeks that we, you know, really, you know, bonded and became a team and became a really organized uh, group of dancers, but they felt a responsibility to help me get back up to speed. And, you know, that endeared me to the team in a way that, uh, what was special and different if I, you know, of course I would have liked to have been there the whole time, but they all kind of rose to the occasion to to help support a teammate at the end of the day. All right, let me rephrase. Not that they looked at you sideways. Um, did you get any questions? Were they curious about what it was like and why you did it and everything else? I mean, you know, just as a normal person would want to know, did, did, did they question you a lot about it? Definitely. Uh, in the same way that when I entered the military, people were curious about, uh, what it was like to be an NFL cheerleader yeah. <laughs> there. And granted, I was, I was, a, I was a cadet. So, you know, my, my experience was super limited and pretty naive, but, you know, I was, you know, I was the rep- the military representative for the team. Uh, you know, I was the closest thing to it. And, you know, I came from a military family too. So it's just kind of ingrained in, in my background and my culture. And so, yeah, they had lots of questions. Uh, and, and I did too. I knew that, at the end of my last season, I was about to commission and go into active duty and kind of leave this whole world behind. It wasn't about me being done cheering. It was I had to choose to be done because I was about to, you know, go off and uh, join the active duty force. And I think that really uh, kind of informed how I navigated that, especially the last, you know, two years of my team time because I, I just knew that I was kind of already beginning to represent something bigger than myself that, you know, to some of these women, it might be the closest interaction that they would have with a, a soldier 
Um, and I just was, I took it seriously to share my experiences as much as I could, you know, while being, you know, so young in the, in my experience in the military. When you look back on your time with the Eagles, um, you know, as somebody who was going through ROTC at the time and, and the training and even the, the, the cultural environment, you know, when you put all that together in a mixing bowl, talk about the emotions of what you felt out on the field. You know, was was it was there any sense of patriotism during the national anthem? Was there any sense of like, you know, you kind of knew that your calling was somewhere else? By my third year, I could feel myself kind of readying myself for the real world and, and putting on a totally different uniform. I, at this, you know, when I graduated high school and was going to college and signing my cadet contract, my idea of patriotism was very kind of, it was just like very picturesque type of patriotism, patriotism, right? And, and the NFL is part of that fabric of, you know, we are the USA national anthem, fear, you know, parades, the, the whole lot. That that was kind of how I felt about my patriotism uh, and getting to take part in something that is, you know, so visible and people are really passionate about. Uh, I certainly took a lot of pride in that. My happy place is still my very first day stepping out of that field on an August sunny day. Um, and standing on the sidelines with the, you know, the giant flag is unfurled around across the field and hearing the national anthem and seeing those jets fly over like that to this day is just one of the happiest days of my life is having that type of experience. Uh, but certainly my, uh, understanding of, you know, how patriotism manifests and the, I'm kind of hesitant to say it, but I I'll speak for myself that my, my patriotism was a little bit shallow. It was kind of surface level. I feel great about America. Uh, and then as I, you know, put my army uniform on and actually you know, had to test that patriotism, it was just a completely deeper understanding. And now at this point, now that I've served and I'm out of the military, I reflect on both of those experiences with, uh, with a lot of gratitude, um, but they certainly, my appreciation for patriotism and all things Americana were different you know, at every stage of those experiences. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about the most memorable moment. The, the most memorable moment I had during my cheerleading days was, was two of them. They kind of coincide. I mean, after 9-11 uh, had happened, remember they postponed the NFL that week and um, – you know, that very next week, we used to, as you well know, you know, you run flags. There are guys who run, well, since we had guy cheerleaders, we ran the flags. And I was the only military member on the team at that point in time. And instead of running four Ravens flags, they said we were going to run an, an American flag out of the tunnel. And, and they asked me to run the flag out of the tunnel. And I, I'll never forget, you know, you know the roar of the crowd in the NFL and what it does, how it sends chills up your spine, right? And so yeah. when that American flag popped out of that tunnel, you know, I, I felt like I ran the fastest hundred yards of anybody alive uh, at that point in time. And then I can remember being on the field and I don't know if you remember this or not, but because um, you, you weren't on the field, you weren't cheering at the time. But, you know, they literally stopped the game when President Bush gave the address that they were going to invade Afghanistan. And I remember it being up on the big screen. And I just remember at that point in time, as I was hearing the president speak, I was literally almost brought to tears. And I kind of knew at that point, you know, I, I felt like I was in the wrong spot spot, you know, like if that makes any sense. I felt like the other uniform I was wearing, I needed to put on at that point in time. Um, and I'm sure you can relate to that, but you know, you get that whole mix of emotions in that, that sort of, uh, as you talked about the Americana of football is all there and it just kind of swells, um, uh, at certain points in time. So I was just curious about, you know, what it was like for you because there, there's so many emotions in a football game in general. Yeah, no, I, I, I can only imagine how powerful that experience must have been for you, you know, being just so close to an event like that that just completely changed the trajectory of the nation and put everything into perspective, right? Like we're so lucky to put so much stock in football that it is, you know, this national sport of ours that gets people so excited, but you know, that's a luxury and it's a luxury that uh, gets really put into perspective when a crisis, you know, like nine 11 exists and puts everything uh, 
anything kind of relative. Let's back up a little bit because you did do ROTC. Now you had all you had decided ROTC post nine eleven, correct? Correct. Okay, yeah. so give me the background because I mean, were your parents okay with that? Were they scared? I mean, where, where's the military relation that you decided to do this? Yeah, uh, my my father was more than excited for me to go ROTC. <laughs> I uh, I was committed to going to school in Philadelphia. I went to a, like a conference out in Valley Forge and spent a couple days in the city and just fell in love with it. I'm a huge history buff, uh, especially anything, you know, early American history. I just love it. And it, that all began in Philly. So it was only natural for me to want to kind of go get my education there. So uh, got into Drexel and didn't really look back. It's a very expensive private school. And so at the time that I got my acceptance letter, that was the first words out of my dad's mouth. Like, well, how are you going to pay for it? And so I was in I the same club, by the way. I was in the exact same club at Loyola, yeah. very expensive private school. And my parents both said ROTC. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, it wasn't even on my radar, even though my dad had served, you know, for 23 plus years, I, it, I wasn't thinking that like, I want to go into the military. I had zero aversion to it, but just wasn't on my radar. Uh, and then I started looking into ROTC and it's obviously a very generous program and, as a freshman going into college, your understanding of at least my understanding of ROTC was, Oh, I get to be outside. I, you know, I can, I'm really good at push ups. I like camping and all these, you know, intense activities, but I hadn't made the full leap to upon graduation. I'm going to be a commissioned officer with it, like remarkable responsibility uh, as a 17 year old kid graduating high school. I hadn't made that connection yet. I just, thought it seemed like a fun activity that would help me get to the school and to the city of my choice. So that was, you know, like a lot of people going into service, you go in for, it's, it's a great profession that has a lot of, uh, you know, resources and I am no different. That was my, my initial motivating factor. So no objections from your mom? I mean, at this point in time, you had to know we were going to war and you were signing up for all this. Yeah. I mean, no, no, nobody said, nah, maybe this isn't the best thing for our daughter. Uh, certainly a little bit. I think if she was going to be enthusiastic about me joining any branch, it was going to be the Air Force. My dad was Army and Air Force, and she had you know a great experience as a spouse while my dad was serving in the Air Force and just saw how, how different the experience was for an airman and just how different the Air Force treated its human capital. And <laughs> I like the way that. you phrase that. <laughs> <laughs> as an Army guy, I appreciate knew, the way you phrase that. <laughs> I, I Only Army people can get it. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, she did, that was her, what she communicated the most to me um, was that if I was going to go into a branch that, she recommended the Air Force, but I always had my heart set on Army. I, I kind of wanted to, you know, be on the ground, close to the action, and felt like, you know, if I'm going to be part of the military, I want the most, like, military, the stereotypical military experience, and to me, that was the Army. All right, let's let's kind of go go back and forth here a little bit on uh, the cheerleading versus the army thing, and, and then we'll get deeper into your army career. But um, more nerve wracking, your first tryouts or jumping out of an airplane? First tryouts because I was trained for three weeks before jumping out of an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, better adrenaline rush being on the field or you know sliding down the rope from an air assault pl- a helicopter. Being on the field, I mean, I really do feel like the cheerleading experience helped help prepare me in a lot of ways because the stakes How are so? high when you're well, you're performing in front of seventy thousand fans. The expectations from our leadership, our director, our choreographer were very high, and you know we were a team, and so people depended on you to hold up you know, your end of the bargain when it came to being a part of that team. And I think that's, that's pretty similar in the military. This, you know, the stakes are obviously not as high, but it, it, it demanded excellence um, in a way that, you know, I don't think a lot of 18, 19 year old college students had, you know, experienced. I'll ask this question knowing a lot of the audience won't understand why I'm asking it or uh, the background for it, but more physically demanding, cheerleading or the military? 
Oh, the military. See, now I'll the go. Only the only thing is, <laughs> I would go the other way as a male. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit different when you're a guy like cheerleading. It was physical exhaustion at the end of practice for me. I mean, it was, you know, because we're throwing girls in the air. So it's a lot more tired running and doing pushups and everything else yeah. was relatively easy compared to, um, you know, a cheerleading practice. So that said, there are much physically more demanding experiences in the military at certain times, you know, when you've been awake for 36 hours and, you know, you're, you're trying to stay alive and things of that nature. But, you know, I'm just talking about the regular rigors of kind of going through physical training from the army versus cheerleading. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that certainly is a good point. And I, I was certainly never expected to still present well, you know, in the army when I was, you know, experiencing a physically demanding, you know, a rock march or whatever, I was allowed to look like I just went through a rock march. But when you're, you know, <laughs> six hours into a game in the middle of winter and, you know, or, you know, a hundred degree August day and you still have to like present well, you know, that's an added element that, I never had to deal with in the military. All right. Uh, you commissioned. Now, you went to what was called a cultural support team. Um, these were, for those who are non-military listening, the military invented these things, for lack of a better term, to help uh, work with the um, Muslim populace in both Iraq and Afghanistan as females were needed because in the Muslim culture, you know, males don't talk to females. Yes, that sounds very ass backwards to Americans, but that just is the way it is. And other females relate to other females better. So there was this need, if we were going to embed with indigenous forces, that there was a female there to work with other females. So they created these cultural support teams um, and they actually recruited for women to do this. Did you know about this ahead of time? Is that specifically what you were going for or did it come across you as you kind of went through your, the natural course of your military career? Okay, so with cultural support team, I found out about it uh, when I was in my first training program, when I first joined active duty, and I saw a poster in a bathroom advertising this new pilot program to attach women to special operations units. It, the capability at large was sort of on my radar. My senior year, New York Times published an article about the Lioness program in the Marine Corps, and at that moment, it just totally crystallized for me, like, oh, this is what I want to do in the military. I, the whole time I was in ROTC, I just kind of felt like I was going to be an infantry officer, <laughs> even though cerebrally, like, and logically knowing that wasn't possible, I just knew what, I, like, what sort of mission I wanted to be a part of, and I was committed to trying to figure out a way to access that mission. I just didn't realize that there was actually going to be an opportunity for me. Um, so when I went to my military intelligence basic officer course and this posters in the bathroom completely describing everything I wanted out of my time in the military uh, coffee and I just ripped it right down and applied right away and went to selection upon graduating our military intelligence basic course. So and there was no resistance from anybody who told you, uh, you know, you don't want to do this. So this isn't for you kind of deal. They were all gung ho for it. Definitely not there. Okay. <laughs> as a, yeah. As an, as an officer, it's, you know, it, it's so regimented in your career path and you have to hit these certain metrics to be, you know, viable and competitive. And I understand why it has to be that way, but you know, so the, the challenges that I got were you're going to leave your designated career path for a year for a program that, First off, it's not institutionalized. We don't even know how to view it on your OER if it's actually contributing to the, uh, you know, the you becoming a, a viable officer in the army. It was it was all so unknown. So people viewed it as potentially hurting my career when all I could see was how could this not help me? Give me just invaluable experience. Um, not only as a, as a leader and a soldier, but as an intel officer to first off have a combat deployment right away and then to work with special operations forces that have every asset available. Um, that exposure to me, I thought, was second to none. Well, it's interesting because uh, give me the year on this when when you started doing this. So it was 2011. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, and the only reason I bring that up is because, you know, I, I was with the SF from 05 to 06. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the still the impression of that community from the regular Army, uh, and yes, they're all Army for those who are non-military listening, but, you know, the special operations community is, is, is just a tad different, and I'm underscoring that on purpose. But, um, you know, and, and there is sort of a 
look from the regular army about the special ops community that going there is only for certain people and you don't go there because, as you said, there's a traditional path that you need to follow to check all these blocks to make sure you are viable. When, and, and until special ops became more normalized, as just through the course of the media and everything else and all the stories that we've heard, so on and so forth, um, there were a lot of people who... Uh, really stood in your way of of finding that sort of community. You know, they, and I think to a certain extent, special ops wanted to not be found. They wanted the people who were mm-hmm. willing to seek it out as much as they could to get people. But, and I can attest to it personally. I mean, if I had had somebody like you during my first deployment, as we did foreign internal defense, it would have been an invaluable tool. Like we were desperate for that um, during, you know, 05, 06, 07, especially during the surge um, to have somebody who did that. And so when it finally came around, you know, a lot of us were going, oh, it's about time. You know, like we could have used this four years ago. Um, so, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm glad you got to do it. I mean, was there anybody who kind of uh, helped you along the way. Cause that's usually what, ha- what happens. You get somebody who's like, no, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to sign off on this for you. I'm going to get somebody to sign off on this for you. Did, did you need somebody like that? Or was it just you constantly pushing and finally they relented? Well, I have to give a shout out to my battle sister that helped, uh, get me, get me on the right path. So the, the girl that I had mentioned that we saw the poster in the bathroom, she was in my, in my course with me. And she was the same mindset. We weren't loving, military intelligence because it's like 90% sit behind a desk and do a PowerPoint. We're like, this this wasn't what we were expecting. And so we were both incredibly eager to, you know, go pursue something else. And we were both signing into 3rd Infantry Division as brand new second lieutenant. And she's the most anxious person I've ever met. And so, you know, no one, no one knew us. That was one of the benefits of our situation of being brand new to a unit uh, both of our, I think both of our units were deployed, so we're going to be on a rear detachment anyway. So people were kind of ready to be like, okay, whoever random lieutenant you are, like, I'll see you in a year. Uh, I, I don't think it would have pushed as hard to let people see that as the option if it hadn't been for her, you know, really advocating for us to, to be able to go to selection in the first place, because, you know, once we really getting to selection was the thing, the hurdle that we had to cross. And then once we got ourselves to selection, it was up to us. Tell me about selection. Uh, I know what regular SF uh, assessment and selection is uh, as much as you can talk about it. What is the, the assessment entail for the females trying to do these CST teams? Yeah, they definitely take a page out of the special ops SF, assessment and selection. It was uh, 10 days and designed to be really ambiguous physically, emotionally, and mentally demanding. So lots of rocking, lots of team exercises and problem solving, um, all everything, unknown time, unknown distance. Uh, and it, it was all at Fort McCall or Camp McCall and at Fort Bragg. And I think the, the coolest thing about it is, you know, all these women, we all had this shared mindset that we were in pursuit of a certain type of mission and to have a certain type of impact. And that was all out of reach for us our entire careers. You know, at this time there was still a combat ban in place yet we all had this, this shared ambition and to, to come to Camp McCall and take a part, take part in an assessment and selection that, you know, was designed to mimic and replicate, um, and select people with a certain type of attribute that the SF community uh, recruits for. And that, I mean, it was just being so close to something we had all kind of dreamed about. And so there was just so much excitement going into that selection, which I can only imagine, you know, is, is an experience shared at SF assessment and selection. But uh, I think was probably amplified because it was also new and fresh. And so the, I think we had an extra element of endurance and uh, adaptability going into that selection because we knew this was potentially our only option to do anything like this. The SF assessment selection uh, attrition rate for males is very high. Was it for you guys as well, or how many people made it through? Can you give me the numbers? Yeah, I I certainly don't remember the specific numbers. The attrition level, I remember being comparable. You know, if we had... 250 girls that went to selection by the time we got to our class and went into training, you know, we had 45 or 50. So it was, it was pretty significant. And then we ended up deploying with, I think 
you know, 40. So how soon after you get through assessment and selection and you go to, I mean, for lack of a better term, the, the, the Q course, the qualifying course or the training, how quickly do you mm-hmm. get to a deployment? So we were the first group of girls to go through the entire formalized pipeline. There was a class, a CST one class who they pulled a lot of girls um, from civil affairs and psyops and deployed them to kind of test the capability. And then we were the first that were recruited military wide, attended an assessment selection, and then a formalized uh, pipeline. That's pretty cool. So it, it was cool, but it it meant there was still a lot of kinks to work out. And our pipeline was was pretty expedited and. Our training hadn't been, it just had the kinks just hadn't been all worked out. But sure, sure. Still, still great training um, and great exposure. But it from from selection to deployment was four four and a half months, and then there were you know women who came from all the branches, you know all different types of exposure to you know necessary combat skills, right to being deployed with. Rangers, Navy SEALs, SF, um, and, you know, going on nightly raids and patrols. So it was a quick turnaround. Um, when your mother, who was opining for you to go to the Air Force, found out you were doing this, what did she say? <sighs> Long pause there. <laughs> I honestly remember her being happy for me and excited for me. But when you're, I was 22 and I was thrilled. And so I don't think I totally understood how hard it must have been for her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that she, that she let me go on my first deployment with nothing but just excitement. But I know it was hard. And I just think she said lots of prayers, but she, she knew I was living out a dream. So she supported me. All right. So your first deployment's in Afghanistan, correct? Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Give me the environment. Um, tell me about like, you know, you, I don't know if you've ever traveled out the United States before, but you end up in Afghanistan. What this is like. Was there ever a moment of going, what the hell did I get myself into? Um, what was the exact mission that you had? If you can talk about it, kind of just give me some of the background. Well, at the end of our training, we were split up into two groups. Half the girls went to do direct action supporting Ranger Regiment. and The other half supported village stability operations supporting special forces. So I... Uh, conducted this village stability operations mission and was attached to uh, a Navy SEAL SOTIF and uh, spent most of my time with a team of Green Berets. So the purpose of our mission was to live in a rural Afghan village, embed with this ODA, and um, help engage the entire population. So village stability operations was designed to uh, connect these rural communities to the central government. And it was also designed to help communities secure themselves. So part of our mission was recruiting for something called the Afghan local police program. And how do you recruit if you don't engage families, mothers? Uh, So part of our job was to connect with the women of the village um, for that purpose. But at a more macro level, how can you understand your operating environment if you're only engaging half the population? How can you gather the most relevant intelligence and information if you're not accessing half the population? So that's where we came in. Uh, so we built relationships and uh, to really fill out the operating picture. Uh, and then at a more tactical level, if there were ever like a night raid that would needed to happen or any sort of like village clearing operation, we would help, you know, ensure that those operations were the most secure they could be because we would search the women um, when in the past, you know, that just was not conducted. And you, you know, may or may not have a completely secure uh, operation. Did you ever feel like, was there a moment like, you, not that you weren't trained or in over your head per se, but, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like, I, I can... I can remember when I was fortunate enough to be attached to the SF, there was a lot of times they asked me, hey, do you want to come on this raid? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And I'd be like, yeah, okay, cool. If you want me to go, I'll go. And then there were times I'm sitting there going, yeah, I'm really not qualified for this. Like, I, you know, I'm glad that they think that I am, but I, I kind of, you know, this wasn't what I specialized in doing. Was there that kind of moment where you're like, wow, look what I'm doing here? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think a lot of the girls felt that way. We got we got good training. We were we're competent women. Uh, 
we could trust our training. But, and I was a brand new second lieutenant. This was my first job in the army. So everything kind of, I felt like I was in over my head, (laughs) but I, uh, I had the best teammate. I was paired with a E6. This was her third deployment. She was a mechanic in the army, uh, did two tours to Iraq, you know, one of them part of the invasion. So she was a a great leader and a great mentor. And so she took good care of me and uh, really helped us integrate with the team successfully because that was, you know, that was our first, uh, those are the first hearts and minds we had to win was the team, the SF team that we were supporting. We had to go in, show our capabilities, um, make them want to leverage us as an enabling force because uh, otherwise we would have no mission to conduct if they didn't think that we were competent as soldiers, that we didn't have a capability that was relevant to their mission, you know, we would not be utilized and then we would have failed. So she was essential to helping me, you know, lead our team, you know, in that initial uh, introduction to the team to show that we were competent soldiers first and that we were going to be an asset to this small team environment. Um, And we're fortunate enough to work with an ODA that, understood our capabilities and wanted to leverage us and then brought us into the fold and made sure that we were trained up to a level that they were comfortable bringing out of some patrols. So, you know, day one, we were out in the range and they were, you know, doing uh, rehearsals and, you know, everything that a a team needs to do to be um, successful out in the battlefield. It's amazing you bring that up because I I tell that to a lot of people. Again, I was very fortunate um, to be attached to the SF when during my deployment, but my whole thing was, much like you were just alluding to, I was more concerned about letting them down than I was about necessarily failing at any given job. And the only way I knew, because it's not like in the SF community, you know, everything is, is linear in in the aspect of it's the mission needs to get done. Right. And anything else that gets in the way of that is a distraction or it takes away from it. And they're not going to sit there. No one in the SF community sits there and corrects what you're doing. They don't have the time to do that. They expect a certain level of performance and training to be had. And so if you don't have it, they just kind of go around you. Politely or impolitely, they just kind of work yeah. around you and get the mission done. And the, I, I tell people all the time, the only way I knew that I was doing good is that they kept giving me more work because yeah. they wouldn't have given me more work if they didn't feel like I was competent enough to do it. And in that, every day when I showed up, I felt like there was this kind of, um, you know, specter hanging over my head of like, don't mess this up because there's a lot of people counting on you. And I think that is one of the, the true gems of the SF community is that there is such a, um, a desire to make sure you let nobody down around you. And, and I think that's how everybody ultimately thrives and survives at a higher level. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it, it's necessary when you have 12 people having that type of impact. I mean, they're a strategic capability. They're their impact is, you know, has cascading effects and mm-hmm. it's 12 people doing that. And so, yeah, and 12 people doing are, the job of like 50 that the regular army it, does, right? I mean, they're yeah. literally doing triple the amount of work. Yeah, it's remarkable. So, I mean, that's, that's awesome to hear um, that, you know, immediately they accepted you. Was that a good feeling? Like, did you, did anybody ever say anything from the SF to you that, you know, hey, Rach, good job? Or, or was it just one of those things where it was silent and you just kept going forward? Uh, you, we got a, a little bit of feedback. Our first, uh, you know, tick that we had gotten into, it was, I think, a real validator for them. They wanted to see, all right, well, they these girls have, you know, met the standard thus far, but let's see when, you know, we get into some sort of um, when bullets activity. are flying. Yeah, yeah, and you know, we we responded like any good soldier should, and I so we got like a little feedback, like glad to see that happened, you know, just as, as anyone would, you know, just no, no major pat on the back, just a little like, all right, all right, we're going out again tomorrow kind of thing. And, um, you know, we knew we, that was a hurdle we had to climb because they're being the first group of women to kind of do this. Of course, that's on everyone's mind. It's maybe an unnecessary question or concern. Um, you know, the, the only concern would be like, here are these two outside people joining a close knit team environment. We need to make sure that they're going to integrate in the team. Um, I would like to think our gender wasn't a part of it, but of course that was always the overtone of our entire time at the, uh, as part of that organization. Yeah. But you know, it's, I mean, I'm thinking back and, and as much as it is, and, and you bring up an excellent point that it's hard to ignore the fact that there were two females there because they're just not in that environment. But in the same respect, having gone through what you exactly did, I don't think they even cared 
to a certain extent. Like if you did the job, it was just like, good. Okay. Got it. Noted. It, yep. it never really mattered what your gender was in that environment because results are what matter. And, and to yeah. that end, um, as much as I, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like from what you're telling me that it was important to be the first females there to really prove yourself as a female. But I think more of it is just to prove yourself that you belong in this environment, gender regardless, correct? Uh, absolutely. And um, combat's the great equalizer, right? Sure. So yeah, absolutely. You, so um, I think that the, you know, day one, when they found out they were getting, you know, two women, two CSTs, that the fact that we were women was what concerned them. But once they realized that we're really, that it's more, con- the, the thing that they should be concerned with is our capability. Um, luckily, we had a team that, that, that is what they put their premium on. And, and that became pretty evident pretty quickly. When you talk about that tick that you were referencing a moment ago, um, your first combat experience, what was that like for you and what stands out about it? Well, what stood out about it to me was that I, I reacted how I would hope to react that I had, you know, better, you know, good training and that my teammate and I reacted in a tactically sound way that was complementary to the entire team's movement. And there wasn't, I think everyone before, you know, they deploy and go into combat for the first time, there's that question of, all right, well, how am I going to react? And I think we were both pleased that, um, you know, we reacted in a way that benefit that was, constructive and just exactly as we should, right? That we trusted our training and there wasn't really a second thought about it. You just kind of go into, um, you know, just react exactly how you've been trained to. Any fear? Um, I mean, the whole deployment, you're hyper aware, right? Right. Um, I didn't feel a ton of fear. I felt like I was in, in great hands with who, you know, we were attached to and the capabilities um, that we were armed with. I was pretty much just excited my entire first deployment. Interesting. I mean, you know, again, I asked the question and I, I don't want to make, make it seem like off putting, but you know, I, I I was, there were times where I was afraid, like I didn't really want to let on, but you know, the natural, as you talk about that heightened sense of awareness of what's going on around you, your heart starts racing a little more and, um, you know, you, you your eyes are kind of like bugging out of your head because you're trying to keep your head on a swivel the whole time. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's more of what I was alluding to necessarily than, oh my God, I was afraid and paralyzed. Right. Well then I think, I mean, I think that's, you've kind of captured it. Um, it's, yeah, I guess I just, I just certainly didn't, Fear was not the way I would describe it. Um, it's, I mean, I was kind of just, yeah, high alert, high adrenaline for eight months. Um, you know, and then you, when you come home and you kind of decompress, you can reevaluate what that feeling actually was. But I was, I had, I had so many different elements of what I was focused on, um, you know, as a team leader to this new organization. I just feel like there was layers and layers of um, expectations and things I was, you know, considering the entire time, but, um, fear was, was not the first, um, emotion that I registered. Do you remember the first time a bullet flew by your head? Cause I do. <laughs> um, I, I do. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, I, you know, I'll be completely frank that like the, the handful of ticks we got in were, um, we were fortunate that we, they could, they can be way worse and we didn't lose any, you know, we, we lost partner force guys, but, um, never lost. I think my experience would have been different if, um, I'd had a kind of deployment that some of my, you know, teammates had had where, you know, they lost, they lost teammates and, you know, Rose and I didn't have that experience. And that certainly changes how I, you know, reflect on my entire time as a CST. Um, but it, it gave me, a sense of confidence coming back from Afghanistan after that first appointment and then becoming a team leader or a platoon leader, you know, in the conventional army, you know, I had combat experience that my peers hadn't and, uh, it, it shaped me for sure. So you went on your second deployment, not as a member of the CST, is that correct? Correct. So I went back to third infantry division was a military intelligence platoon leader. Um, and, uh, just it's had a 
a more conventional experience my second time around. How boring. Um, before we get to the second, <laughs> before we get, to, I just want to like when you finished that deployment and you left and you knew you were leaving. Uh, talk. What's what are the feelings that you were feeling as you completed that and this goal that you had set out for this dream that you wanted to pursue? Kind of now, almost for lack of a better term, it's finished, right? You know, you're going to go mm-hmm. do something different. Um, did anybody from you know the the SF and the the special operations community say anything to you on the way out the door that stuck with you? And what was that feeling like leaving, going home, going, man, I did this. I got it. You know, I I did everything I set out to do. Yeah, well, I think the biggest compliment to my teammate and I was that the the team that came after the special forces team that uh, came after us requested. You know, they worked. We worked with them for a couple weeks before we left country, and they requested to be backfilled with CSTs. So to me, uh, that was the biggest compliment we could have gotten. That the the team that we had only worked with for a couple weeks had the opportunity to say yes or no. Do we want this capability at this. Uh, at our compound and they said yes because they saw the value in it. So I I left feeling like we had accomplished our mission. I also left feeling that you know I was going to figure out a way to get back and do this mission again. Like surely you know the this the mission the capability is still needed. Surely they're going to want women to come do back and do this again who have experience. And so I, I naively thought that I would have the opportunity to do it again. So I was, I was definitely hopeful when I was leaving country that it wouldn't be the last time I got to have this type of opportunity. Unfortunately, the army just didn't have the space and capacity to let that happen. So most of us all returned to our regular units, had these incredible experiences that no one totally understood. And then sometimes people were like, well, what did you do for the last year and a half? It's not, you know, none of this is relevant to your branch. Um, so it was a challenge for a lot of women returning from our deployment. I hear that that's such an asinine thing for someone to say to you. It's not relevant. It doesn't have to be relevant to your branch. It has to be relevant to you being in the army. I mean, operational yeah. experience is invaluable. It doesn't matter what your branch is. Um, and, and that alludes, you know, kind of goes to my next question. Cause I remember my second deployment was with the conventional army and I thought it sucked. Like it was just a, such a, a, a vastly different experience, you know, the tenor of everything, you know, everyday life. I mean, uh, I, I, for lack of a better term, deploying in the special operations realm is, uh, you know, where the adults come to play. And then in the conventional army, and I don't mean to sound disparaging, but it's a lot more babysitting and micromanaging and rank structure and everything else. And it just, it doesn't allow smart, free thinking people to really excel in that environment. I wouldn't completely disagree. Uh, it it was still very important for me to have that experience uh, because there is something just amazing about how a 5,000-person brigade mobilizes and deploys sure, for yeah. a year, right? Like to see the power and the might and the capacity of the military and that, that was remarkable. And I certainly learned – I did learn like a baseline of skills that I – I didn't, if I would have stayed just in uh, in an enabling role in the special operations community. So I'm grateful for it, but was it as fun? No. Did I miss going on patrols every day? Absolutely. I spent most of my time in a windowless room, you know, in a skiff, you know, just behind a computer again, exactly where I didn't want to be. But I, I felt like I was... I, I mean, I was a platoon leader, so I had, you know, 40 soldiers and that's unbelievably rewarding in a way that, you know, I didn't experience on my first deployment. And it certainly was an education. I just, as a, on a, <laughs> a personal level, I would have, I just really loved the CST mission yeah, and well, everything about it. My second deployment was stuck on division staff. So I was bored out of my skull Oof. for a year, yeah. um, you know, and again, and, and it's just the, the kinetic environment in the special operations community, just everything's go, 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 go. And the days seem to drag on sometimes, as you're saying, as you're stuck behind a computer all day long. Yeah. It's, look, and, and listen, maybe I was a little unfair a moment ago. It's just different experiences. I mean, one's not necessarily better than the other. I mean, it came more fun. Sure. You know, you'll have better memories and, and more um, operational information that you can download later on in your career that comes of value, but I think all these experiences, you know, provide you with one, you know, something useful one way or another. So I may have been a little bit harsh before and unfair, but you kind of, you kind of had me feeling, you know, like I was back on my first deployment and, and, and I miss it. I, to this day, again, I'm, I'm nearly about to do 20 years in the military. To this day, those 15 months I spent in the special operations community were the best 15 months of my career. It's not, and yeah. it's not even close. It, there's nothing even close that matches it. And it doesn't matter what rank I am or anything else. I'll always look back on that time as a captain and go, that was the best thing I ever did in my entire career. 
I know. And it's hard when you do it right off the bat too. Like you were pretty young yeah. <laughs> and to have that type of experience and then to be at such a high and then try to, to match it. I, I totally relate to, to that feeling. Let me ask you just in general about being a small part of the 13% of the females in the military um, or in the army for that matter. It, you know, it, it's, it's been an uphill battle um, to say mm-hmm. the least. And, and women have dealt with a whole bunch of additional challenges that they shouldn't have had to deal with. Throughout your career, do you feel like as a female, you were always supported in the military? Did you feel like, was it, let me be frank about this, okay? Like, the bottom line here is that, you know, there are women in the military who have dealt with some really bad things that don't uphold the Army values. Throughout your career, have you experienced any of that? Um, I had a mostly very positive experience in the military. Um, I don't know if you're alluding to the, like, the real awful, illegal, tragic things that yes. Yeah, uh, no, but I, it, it exists, it exists for men too, right? It's, sure. it's a cultural systemic problem of, um, you know, <laughs> acknowledging and respecting other human beings. Um, but with, it, it is a challenge being a woman in the military. And I, even as I'm, you know, sharing my story here, I am incredibly aware of, of how of how I share my story because I think the female experience female soldier experience is almost always viewed conditionally and I think a, a lot of female veterans when they talk about their service feel like it's being viewed through a different lens because for so long we were not part of the the combat narrative the hero narrative about valor. You know, even though women have been serving on the front lines for the entirety of the global war on terror and yep. frankly beyond with honor, with valor, they don't get the same just benefit of the doubt that, oh, first off, oh, you're a veteran. Wow. I would never think you're a veteran. Oh, you went, you deployed. Well, you probably just sat on a fob. Oh, you, you know, you supported this. You know, there's, it's always a surprise. Um, and so the challenges that, you know, my teammates and I faced were often just kind of expectations and assumptions made about us and what our, how our service was defined that people would project on us. And, you know, we weren't kind of brought into the brotherhood that, you know, our fellow teammates were. You were the first on one of the CST teams. Uh, we now have the first females to graduate Ranger School. The combat ban has been lifted. Um, your feelings, emotions on these things, is it long overdue? Are you happy about it? Thrilled. Thrilled. I mean, I when I saw those, those two girls that uh, – those the two women that graduated Ranger School, you know, we were – there's a, a contingent of us, of us CSTs that were very, very close. We're all, it's basically a family because there's so few of us. You know, we were following their prog- progress the entire way through. And I, there's a few CSTs now who have graduated and have their Ranger tab. I think it's great. Uh, I'm glad that the combat ban is lifted. I think, I'm so surprised that we're still even talking about it because one of the things and one of the hopes that I had when the combat ban would be lifted was, oh, well, this is the military. That's the beauty of a mission-driven organization. Leadership tells you this is the way it's going to be done. This is your mission. Go execute. And there's no questions. And that's like the beauty and the magic of the military is we can execute anything. But with, you know, female integration, it's like we're still having a conversation about should it be happening, yet it's been mandated for a few years now. Uh, So that just shows the 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 cultural challenges um, that women, you know, do face because the standard has been set, the 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 mandate has come down, and women are actively going out and pursuing opportunities under the same standards that any male soldier would have to go. And yet, there's still their validity in those situations, and their the validity of their their possibility to even pursue opportunities is constantly in question. So, as I am 100% supportive and excited that the doors have been opened and that women are given the opportunity to succeed and fail. And uh, it, it just still baffles me that it's, a, it's a, a question if that's right or wrong at this point. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I sigh because I get frustrated because, I, again, I've been part of this organization for 20 years. 
And the idea that we're anything but a meritocracy is just is ludicrous at this point. I mean, I don't care if if a woman can pass ranger school under the same standards as a man. What is the big difference? Like literally, yep. <laughs> what is the and and a lot of that comes literally from the special ops community. Like it, it didn't matter what your MOS was. It didn't matter where you came from. I mean, I was a friggin' log guy, you know, sitting in the back of a Humvee manning a 240 on a raid. Like, I had no business being there, but they put me there, and I excelled, and as far as they knew, it didn't matter. And so in in the military where it's supposed to be that, I, I it's just so frustrating that we're still at a point where someone's going to give the side eye to a female for being in a room with all males, and it's like, guys, I mean, literally, what I mean, are we still hung up on this sort of archaic, draconian thinking? It, it can only be frustrating for you. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would think you'd want the most talented people in the room, regardless of gender, and uh, that's just all we should be concerned about. Do we have the right people in the room and there's a set of standards that have helped define that and that's how we've been measured for however long that these organizations have existed and I'm not sure why it's a complicated issue now. You know, you've had a different experience um, than the regular army and um, I, I remember I got a chance, It was I think it was Women's History Month and I got a chance to moderate a panel of all female soldiers and it was in front of a, you know, a regular audience of all soldiers and everything. And and I remember the point being brought up, uh, and I don't know if you experienced in the regular army, because I know this isn't the experience in the, in the special ops community, but more of the barriers towards females progressing through the ranks as fast as males come from other females than necessarily males that stand in their way. I remember that being brought up and, and simply, I think other females push back harder on other females. Oh, she's not ready. She's, you know, she hasn't done what I've done kind of deal when there's not that necessarily that encouragement. Did you ever experience that or see that in any size, way, shape or form? Uh, it certainly wasn't my experience. I have, I had an overwhelmingly positive experience with uh, female soldiers and officers sure, that I yeah. worked with and for. Um, yeah, so I, I can't, I can't attest to that. Okay, I mean, it was just, it was something that was brought up during the panel, and I, and I always remembered hearing it, and it stuck with me just because you know th- there seems to be, um, and I think this is true of, of of both genders. When you get to a certain spot, you don't want other people to have to get to that spot without the same sort of challenges Struggle. you had to get yeah. there, and so there's a desire to push people down and say, you know, you don't. You can't get to where I've gotten this quickly because, well, you know, you have to do it the way I did it and and there's natural pushback. Um, when you look at the experience nowadays, do you, I mean, the military clearly is different, but is it better for females now than it was years ago? I can only imagine that it is. When I think about – when I hear stories about, you know, the first women who went to West Point and just the vitriol that was projected at them – I can't imagine. Uh, I, I absolutely think that we're on a, a path to that things have gotten better. Um, I've had I had an overwhelmingly positive experience as a woman in the military, even with the challenges that I had. Um, I kn- I absolutely had a positive experience, and just even talking to my teammate who I deployed with as a CST, who had been in a decade, you know, before me, her stories just com her entire experience was so different than mine, you know, coming in after 2010. Um, and I can only imagine that people coming in a decade after I did, um, have it, you know, the, the path has been laid. Some of the, the glass ceiling has been broken and some people have had gotten cut in the process, but you know, that's just the, that's just the path to progress. Do we need more females in the military? I mean, again, 13% is the number. Um, do, do you feel like, it needs to be closer to 50-50 or is this just something that, you know, will continue to be where it is because it's not a career path that a lot of females desire? I certainly think that the organization can only benefit by having a more diverse makeup. So I absolutely think more women, um, that the organization would better benefit from having more women in it. So hypothetically speaking, a 17-year-old girl comes to you and says, I'm thinking about signing up for the military. What do you tell her? Oh, I would only advocate for it. I mean, I would want to make sure that um, if I gave her any sort of advice, that it would be catered to what she's trying to achieve. You know, what like what do you want out of the military? But it's, I mean, it just builds so much character. Like, who can benefit from that? Your journey has been so unique. 
when you look back on what is it now the last uh, 10 years well more than that now since you were a uh, uh, Eagles cheerleader but when you look back on the whole thing um what stands out you know the, obviously you don't wish you've done anything different i assume but um you know it's not a story that a lot of people can tell yeah i you know you you talked a little bit about you know some of your experiences going overseas but you know, when I think about my time with the Eagles, the thing that, you know, really connects these two worlds for me was going on a USO tour, Goodwill military tour to Iraq in 2008. And, you know, I was halfway through my time as a cadet, just kind of starting to understand what I was really getting myself into. And then to go and spend two weeks in Iraq at, you know, the tail end of the surge was so eye opening. Um, and really put into perspective, like, okay, Rachel, this is about to be real. The next time you're going to be in Iraq and Afghanistan, like you're going to be charged with leading soldiers. So it's time to, to kind of wake up, um, to be into the opportunity that you actually have. And, uh, by far the most rewarding thing I did as an Eagles cheerleader. And it is kind of remarkable that something that people see is so separate, totally different experiences that have no uh, connectivity was the one thing that completely solidified my journey into the military and and the kind of leader that I wanted to be. Ultimately, why'd you decide to end your military career? I wanted to pursue things that I could not do in the military. I, one of the things that we kind of touched on it here that there's this prescribed vision of what your career path should look like in the military. I always wanted to feel like I had a little bit more agency over what I was going to do with my career. And I wasn't feeling like I was going to be able to do that in the military. So I decided after six years uh, to move on. Listen, you know, I mean, you you hesitated. I feel like you um, almost uh, not feel like you made the wrong decision, but like it's one of those things where you you feel like people might look at your side or, or, you know, question why you would do it. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you did your part, you did your service, fulfilled your obligation and you move on. I think, you know, that's okay. Um, I'm just, you know, am I overthinking the hesitation? No, I just, you know, I've been out for coming up on three, this summer will be three years Mm -hmm. and I am blown away by how I still very much feel like I'm transitioning out. You know, when I decided to leave the military, I was like, okay, like the first year will be kind of a challenge and then I'm just going to hit the ground running. But, you know, the military gets in, it's, it gets in your blood and it's, it's, it's who you are and your identity. And, uh, you know, even though I'm very comfortable with my choice and I've had a really wonderful experience outside the military and I'm, um, so fortunate I mean, I still like, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, you know, PT would be actually kind of fun today. Like today, like the other day I missed, I wish I was doing a PT test, which I hated PT tests in the military. (laughs) Like who, who likes the night before a PT test, right? You're stressed out. Stomach is in knots the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like feeling very nostalgic of it. So, uh, I feel like I made the right choice, but it's, it's your family and you leave it. And it's always a little sad. That APFT is about to change in 2020. You know that, right? I've heard, yeah. Yeah, it's it's going to get dramatically different for a lot of people, um, including the old guys like me. So what are you doing now that you're out of the military? Uh, so I left the military in summer 2016, did a little bit of nonprofit work. Um, and in the last year and a half, I've been doing geopolitical advising at a veteran-owned investment bank. It's called Academy Securities, and they have a social mission to train, hire, and mentor post-9-11 veterans. So really unique in Wall Street, uh, a really genuine, authentic firm that you know takes their social mission seriously while providing you know unique uh, you know investment banking coverage. That's awesome. So are you on the trading floor? I'm a coverage, like a relationship manager for um, a bunch of different corporate accounts. So like healthcare, uh, consumer staples, and aerospace and defense. And then I do like geopolitical research. So like tying that into like a, you know, a macro strategy to how geopolitical events impact the the markets. Let's play the, the hypothetical game. Tomorrow, I give you the option to put back on either the cheerleading uniform or the military uniform. Which one are you choosing? 
are all the geopolitical situations exactly the same, or is there like a new enemy that we need to let's, like go let's to remove geo? <laughs> let's remove. Let's put you in a vacuum in a bubble. I'm giving you one choice to go to work tomorrow as a cheerleader or as as an officer. Which one are you picking? Cheerleader. Yeah. I guess dancing. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. you can still go back to that, Rach. You're still really young enough to do it. I mean, you know. I've toyed with the idea. Um, I really honestly have just because I really miss dancing and performing. I just, I don't know if it would be back at the NFL or if I would find some other outlet. But. There's a lot more uh, professional dance teams out there now. I mean, and you've already got it on your resume that you did it once. So you'll get a little cachet uh, with the director going forward. Look, yeah. go for it. you got nothing to lose at this point. <laughs> I appreciate the support. So, I mean, listen, I've enjoyed talking to you so much. This is incredible. Um, I love your story. Again, um, not trying to take anything away from you. It's just great that I know somebody else who, you know, got to walk the same serendipitous footsteps as I did, so to speak, um, being a cheerleader and being in the military. Because they're two things nobody would ever put in the same sentence. But, um, you know, and your experience in the military is a unique one. Um, forget the cheerleading thing, just what you were able to do and accomplish. And I think that in and of itself sort of blazes a trail. And, you know, I mean, it leaves a legacy. It's, it's obviously something you have to be proud of. Well, I appreciate that. And I've really enjoyed our conversation, too. And Thanks for the opportunity to talk a little bit about my service. I'm Rachel Washburn. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today.